Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. All right. Hey, thanks, Norm, for the intro. We are live in studio in WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. We are streaming live on WNUR.org slash pop-up, and we're available as a podcast on iTunes. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us on America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by field reporter Giovanna Jacques and our guest co-host Brad Caleb Lee. More about him in a second. 847-866-WNUR is the number in the studio. Call us. You get to sound off live on air on what we're talking about. 847-866-9687. All right. Tonight we go inside the huddle with Kim Whitman from Wolf Trap Opera. She joins us to talk opera stats as well as give her insider takes on young artist auditions. But first, we talk to Brad Caleb Lee, assistant director on the upcoming production of Missy Mazzoli's opera Song from the Uproar at Chicago Fringe Opera. You're going to get an exclusive look into the sonic world of this unique work as well as into its characters, its design concept, and its rehearsal process. And naturally, you get all your opera headlines in the two-minute drill. It's a high fly ball to right field. It's going Going. Gone. Got a great show for you tonight. Giovanna Jacques, how are you? Hello, I'm great. How are you, George? It's been a while. Yes, it has been a while, but I'm really happy to be back. And I'm really excited that Brad Caleb Lee is here today. The man of many, many emails and much, much information. (laughs) I love that you're both insisting on using my full name at all times. Because all we see in Gmail is Brad Caleb Lee, Brad Caleb Lee, Brad. It's amazing. (laughs) I love it. It's true. It's true. Giovanna, where have you been? Where haven't I been, George? Okay. That's Um, the real question. Argentina? Um, Yeah, okay, you won. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. Don't ask that question. I figured you hadn't been there. Um, Not this time. Well, good. Uh, really quickly, let's just talk a little bit of sports. The Cubs are in the World Series. I'm almost welling up with tears as I say this. It's it's impossible to believe. Brad, do you even care? I do care. I'm, I'm pretty excited. It's great, you know, even as a new Chicagoan to just see the city so alive with all the things that are happening. And, like, obviously Cubs fever is sweeping, like, everywhere. Everyone's excited. And then I, I also have some friends that are, like, lifelong Cubs fans and like to see them I just like I see their faces and it's so exciting for them and how about you Giovanna do you care uh, um you know I I don't but I'm so proud of the Cubs <laughs> and I'm really happy for everyone that does care I always said they would make it to the World Series I didn't say they were going to win but I always said that they were going to make it to the World Series this year and I said to my kids who are seven and four I was like please remember this moment i think we're gonna i'm gonna let them stay up late so we can watch some of the games together i remember the tigers back in uh detroit near my hometown winning the 84 world series and i'm trying to impress upon my kids how important this is all right you guys shall we talk some opera let's talk here we go chalk talk on opera box score we are back. WNUR, FM, Evanston, Chicago. It's Opera Box Score in your ear holes. All right. So 
Song from the Uproar is a contemporary American opera by the composer Missy Mazzoli, who's based in New York. The New York Times calls her one of the most consistently inventive, surprising composers now working. Her music's been performed all over the world. The Kronos Quartet by 8th Blackbird, pianist Emmanuel Axe, the L.A. Philharmonic, New York City Opera. The list is really long. And her 2012 opera, Song from the Uproar, is being done at Chicago uh, fringe opera. So, Brad, let's let's start with you. You're the assistant director. So, what does that actually mean that you do? Uh, in this case, it means I do a lot of things. Um, normally, that means mostly just being there to support the director and taking notes for them, um, and also keeping up with all of the blocking and staging for the for the piece. Also, can mean fixing projectors. Yeah, potentially. You know, <laughs> in this case, um, with Chicago Fringe, that's quite a much more expanded role. So, I've been. Um, not only helping with notes and like interacting with all the designers, but also doing a lot of props, um, helping organize some of the finding of things that we need as we, it's a found space project. So there's lots of, of bits that have to be found in figuring out how to make things work in that space, as well as liaising with the church that we shared this performance space with, which has been a really nice experience. And they've been super great about working with us and letting us, you know, kind of do what we need to do. Where um, is the venue? So it's at the Preston Bradley Center, which is right off the Lawrence Red Line stop. And it's in Mason Hall there, which is a... it's called Mason Hall because it was built for the Masons, but they never moved in because apparently it's built the wrong way. So it's orientated the wrong way is what they tell us. But it's this quasi-dilapidated space, which they've also kind of enhanced with a lot of making it look more dilapidated than it is. Just a big square room. It's got amazing acoustics um, and it's offered a lot of really exciting um, performance opportunities for us in the way that the piece is being staged. It's going to be staged... Um, kind of uh, what we would call in theater traverse. So audience all around. Um, there's not like you're looking end on. It's a very immersive theater experience that we're playing with in this, in this cool space. Again, the composer is Missy Mazzoli. Librettist is Royce Vavrak. He's from Alberta, Canada, lives in Brooklyn now. He's a playwright. He's a musical theater writer. He's a filmmaker, and he's collaborated, obviously, with Missy Mazzoli, as well as composers like David T. Little and Ricky Ian Gordon. Uh, so Brad... Talk us through, in 30 seconds or less, the plot of Song from the Uproar. Great. So uh, it's about this amazing woman named Isabel Eberhardt, who lived at the turn of, around the turn of the century. Um, she was the illegitimate daughter of a Russian aristocrat mother and her the tutor of her mother's children. Um, and so Isabel grew up but in this very anarchist way, but also highly educated. She spoke seven or eight languages. She was... Um, dressed as a man her whole life to give herself because it gave her so many more opportunities in life at that time. Um, but always obsessed with Algeria and um, was a prolific writer published at the age of 18. Um, and so upon the death of her mother and her brother, one of her brothers, she kind of moved, to, just kind of gave up. Her inheritance was kept from her by her half brothers and sisters who were Russian, kind of tied it all up in lots of legal disputes. And she just kind of said, you know, have it and and move to North Algeria and converted to Islam, but continued to dress as a man and live as a man was, you know, quite what they would have called at that time promiscuous. Um, you know, she kind of lived to write. So she was, you know, she did all these different drugs. She was sleeping with lots of different men. She was going on these adventures out into the desert. She was... Um, she was also, you know, writing, uh, translating for the, both the French government and these Islamic, you know, groups, sheik groups, um, as she was, you know, playing whoever basically was going to pay her to translate information because she spoke so many languages. 
um, but also just, you know, living on the edge and adventuring. And she always felt this need to go out and to explore and to write about her life experiences. But this, killed at the age of 27 in a flood. In the middle of the desert. In the middle of the desert. So The story is kind of insane. Yeah, it's kind of insane and operatic. And, you know, after her death... There was a huge fight over who was going to control, like all these different people from across Europe went to Algeria to kind of claim they got to control what bits of her writing survived yeah. in these like clay jars that they just happened to be in. It's <laughs> unbelievable. So, um, so it's about her life and about her need to write and these, and it's kind of this episodic telling of these stories of, of who she was, you know. And, Let's and, take a listen to a clip. Let's do. Um, maybe you can set this up for us. So this is from the middle of the opera uh, and the extract that we're playing is called I Am Not Mine. Right. So um, this is, yeah, probably about a third of the way through the opera. Um, it's it's her it's kind of the one true love of her life. Um, she had really two. She had a brother that she you know was very close to, and then amidst all of her lovers, she had this lover, Slamen, who was um, Algerian, and they actually got married at one point. But this is this is supposed to be the moment when she sees him for the first time and kind of has love at first sight with him. All right, take a listen.
Yeah, you know, I've really never heard anything like it that is music. So cool. It's just yeah, it's, it's so amazing. Cool. It's breathtaking, and the whole the whole opera. There's a lot, and you know, you have that kind of stuff, but you also have these like just soaring, beautiful melodies that come through both in the chorus. And then, and in the main character Isabel, who's played, she's the only named character in the opera, um, who's being played by this amazing um, soprano, making, I mean, um, mezzo, making her uh, Chicago debut, Emma Sorensen. We're so blessed to have her with us. You're listening to Opera Box Score on WNUR. Number in the studio eight four seven eight six six nine six eight seven. Let us know if you've seen a Missy Mazzoli piece before, whether that was symphonic work or choral work or indeed an opera. We're talking to Brad Caleb Lee, the Assistant Director on the upcoming production of Song from the Uproar, the 2012 opera produced by Chicago Fringe Opera. That clip we just listened to, it's the new Amsterdam label from 2012, mezzo-soprano Abigail Fisher as Isabel Eberhardt, and the now ensemble conducted by Stephen Osgood. Brad, what does this show look like? Uh, it's a really interesting look. So like I said, it's being staged kind of in this long um, it's a long stage with you know seating on each side, um, and it's got a lot of different elements. We've got um, this uh, fine artist who's doing some really cool projection work um, in different places around the space, mixing in painting, kind of modern paintings um, that really inspired Amy, who's our director, uh, along with kind of vintage footage and photos of, of Isabel. And then we've got amazing costumes, which uh, are not actually period. So we've we've stayed away from doing a very period look. It's something that's more... Um, as our costume designer Janice Pytel, you know, described it as like a Vogue style photo shoot in in you know homage to that period. So you're seeing a very kind of modern look, as these are very modern ideas about what people are and exploring in this piece. So we thought that was really important. Um, with lots of you know, it's it's got a lot of different looks to it, and we're really excited about the team. You know, along with Ted, who is our um, lighting designer, has also just brought so many. You know, I think uh, he pointed out that most operas have maybe 50 light cues, and we're up to like I think 160 something yeah. different looks for Ted the show. Ted Nazarowski, the lighting designer. Yeah. Now you mentioned mentioned Amy Hutchison, who is the director. What's been the most exciting part of the process for you guys as collaborators? Um, I've, I just I think um, just getting to know each other actually, because I didn't know Amy before, but you know she's. She's been a really fun person to work with, but, you know, just really getting her take on it and working with, you know, all these different elements and our group of performers who are just bringing, they bring so much to rehearsal every day. Um, And like I said, Emma is just taking, you know, has been such a joy, especially. Um, But, you know, was my roommate. It's yeah. She was my roommate for a summer in in, uh, opera works in Los Angeles. And she's been a dear friend ever since. And that's how we you found her. That's how that's, I found her. Well, that's exciting. Grandfathered her into the company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that's been really exciting. But also, you know, to troubleshoot and to, you know, Amy is very welcoming in the collaborative spirit. And I really love that about her that, you know, it's always almost from day one been a conversation. She's included everyone in a conversation of what should be happening. Is this working? Is it not working? Well, if it's not working, you know, she and I spent about 20 minutes the other day. Basically, I, you know, I said raining on each other's parade. Her going, well, do you think this will work? And I was like, no, that won't work. And then I would throw something out and, and we eventually find answers that way. So that's really nice to have that kind of spirit in the room. How yes. did you meet her? Sorry, George. Go ahead. I, I met her. We were just both hired to do this production. We didn't know each other before. So it was just, a, you know, a, a pairing from Chicago Fringe Opera, nice. you know, to... Two people who just needed jobs. I guess. So. Missy Mazzoli is going to be in town for the opening night. Uh, she's just had huge success doing this production, breaking the waves at Opera Philadelphia. It's a 
opera treatment or adaptation with Royce Vavrek, the same librettist of the Lars von Trier film. Uh, and that was just a huge hit in Philadelphia. She's got another opera coming up in 2018. What's it going to be like to have her in the room? I think we're all like, I think there's, um, everyone's really excited, but there's also some nervousness, which is kind of interesting to see because we're obviously all really excited to have her there. Yeah. But this is the first production of Song from the Uproar that she has not been directly involved with. So everyone is um, is waiting to see kind of how she, you know, reacts to somebody having a different take. Um, it's also the first time this opera is being done without microphones. Yeah. So every other production has been amplified um, and we're not doing that in any way. So it's, you know, there's a lot of changes. So we're all very excited there to have her tomorrow. Yeah, that's interesting, though. I mean, and I'm not going to put words in Missy Mazzoli's mouth, but it's like when you write a new opera, everybody wants to do the first production yeah. because it's brand new. And the second time out or if there's like a local premiere, it's a lot less appealing because like it's not quite that new thing. And I do think I'm not I'm not a composer, but I do think you have to let that piece go into the world and know that people are going to reinterpret it, misinterpret it, overinterpret it and really create their own thing you with the show. You took the words right out of my mouth, George. Yeah. I was leaning over to the microphone to say that exact yeah. thing, and probably think- less eloquently, but still, I was going to say <laughs> yeah. it. There, and there have been conversations. I know that Amy and Kathy, our, um, our conductor, Catherine O'Shaughnessy, they've had conversations with Missy and, Roy, Missy and Royce. But, um, yeah, we really have tried to go. Amy has very much had a very strong and, like, trying to find our own way through it. And I think we've done that in a really beautiful way. All right. So how do we see the show? You see the show, you can, uh, it's at the Preston Bradley Center in Mason Hall, like I said, which is located on Lawrence Avenue. Um, you can get your tickets at chicagofringeopera.com. That's chicagofringeopera.com. And there are shows this Friday night, um, October the 28th, uh, this Sunday, October the 30th, and then November 1st and 3rd. So only four performances. There's a limit, you know, only 150 seats per, per performance. So get your tickets before they go out. Did I mention that the Cubs are in the World Series? Yeah, you did. <laughs> and that the dates basically overlap <laughs> with the World Series. But you can do both. Can you You not? could do both. I think you could do both. Yeah, so the show on Friday is at 8.30, and then the other days are at 7.30. That'd be a pretty cool and double there's header. there's something that you said about a seventh inning, and I'm going to say it, but I have no idea what that means, but I just want to sound smart. So I'm going to say, and something you'll be out by the seventh inning. The seventh yeah. inning stretch, Giovanna. The point <laughs> is, is that if the show, how long is the show? 85 minutes. Exactly right. So if it starts at 7.30, it would be done by right after nine. You would still catch the final third of the game and watch the Cubs march to victory. Mm-hmm. Brad Caleb, can you stick around for a little bit yeah, and talk some more opera with us? Fantastic. Opera box score here on WNUR. We'll be right back. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Coughs and colds are no fun for anyone, but don't assume you need antibiotics. Taking unneeded antibiotics can do more harm than good because sensitive bacteria are killed and resistant ones are left to grow. That means the next time you take an antibiotic, it might not work. This message brought to you by the National Consumers League and WNUR. Landmines maim or kill approximately 26,000 civilians every year. 8,000 to 10,000 of these victims are children. There are 60 to 70 million landmines in the ground in at least 70 countries. Landmines, which cost as little as $3 to produce and deploy, impede economic recovery, prevent the return of refugees and internally displaced persons, block access to medical centers, damage the environment, and hamper reconciliation and peace. 
They are indiscriminate weapons that cannot distinguish between a soldier and a child. To learn more about the global landmine crisis and which countries are suffering most from them, go to www.landmines.org to find out about this pervasive problem and the International Mine Ban Treaty. This message brought to you by WNUR. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. Opera Box Score on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. George Cedarquist here with the lovely Giovanna Jacques. Hello. And the equally lovely Brad Caleb Lee, if I may say that. Thank you. Well, Thank you're you. welcome. Of course you can. Anytime. Uh, operaboxscore.com is the website. You can find links to everything that we're talking about today uh, on Twitter, at Operaboxscore. And don't forget to use our brand new hashtag, Operaballs. <laughs> Did you just get that? Yeah. <laughs> it ha- oh, grow up, Giovanna. It's because we're a sports talk <laughs> opera show. That's right. You're such a filthy mind. Oh, my goodness. Get out of here. Brad Caleb Lee, I want to spend a few more minutes on your career. We've we've mentioned Wales, you've mentioned Alabama, but like connect the two for us. How did you get from A to B? Uh, so in short, I am from very rural Alabama. Um, I did an undergraduate in business management at the University of Alabama, and I also did a second undergrad there, kind of simultaneously in theater management. And then some people suggested that I get into design, um, so I took a couple of touch-up classes. Um, the grad course there was really great and let me do that. And then it has just been like a, you know, a steamroll from there. I was picked up by this great theater in Massachusetts who let, I did eight shows for them over two years doing the scenery for that. And then went to the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, which is the National Conservatoire of Wales, um, on their graduate course for set and costume design. And that just, you know, was, I can't say enough nice and wonderful things about that course and the people who run it. Um, but that really also connected me with, you know, um, with some of the top people in the industry, some great experiences. Um, it's funny that Mizzy just did Breaking the Waves because I designed the premiere of Dogville as a stage adaptation in my career, which is really exciting. Um, and then from there, I designed the British exhibition for the Proquagenial, which, you know, was then one-on-one contact with people like Ez Devlin, Paul Brown, um, you know. Uh, big, these are big names. Big names. Yeah. Bob Crowley, yeah. most Tony-winning yeah. person alive. Yeah. Um, and getting to see their work also, especially Paul Brown and Gary McCann, who are two big opera designers. Their work really solidified, I think, what I think about design. They're just lovely people to work with. And then um, you made it to Chicago. And then I literally just moved yeah. Chicago cold because yeah. you got to go somewhere, right? Yeah. When the British government kicks you out because you're an American. Um, <laughs> so then here and just, you know, carrying on in Chicago. Fantastic. I'm telling you guys, Welcome. keep an eye. Keep an eye on this guy right here. Kim Whitman from Wolf Trap Opera is one of the doyens. And I say that. I don't want to make her sound old. She's not old. When you say doyen, it makes people sound old. Uh, doyens of the young artist, resident artist, emerging artist programs in this country. Wolf Trap, based in Washington, D.C., just outside in Vienna, Virginia. She, okay, there are other people in the young artist program scene that know as much about the business as her. There is no one I know of who writes about it like her, who is so open and transparent. She was the first blogger in arts administration, as far as I am aware, in 2004. To me, she she's kind of like Penn and Teller. Do you guys ever watch Penn and Teller? Do you know who I'm talking about? I have no idea. Yeah. Okay, Penn and Teller, they're relatively famous magicians here in our native 
America, Giovanna. Um, and their whole shtick is like they do magic tricks and then they tell you how the magic trick is done. And to me, Kim Whitman is one of those magicians where she watches all these auditions and then she writes about them. She collects all the stats off of them and she kind of shows you how the trick is done. If you're not reading her blog, opera.wolftrap.org, you're really doing yourself a disservice if you're auditioning. Have either of you guys ever come across her, Brad or Giovanna? Yes. I've heard of her, but I've never read her blog. Okay. It's very so well you're written. behind, Brad, really if cool. you Sorry, are well, auditioning. I don't, I don't audition, though. Well, lucky for you. I don't audition. Either. I'm not a performer. Javana, how about you? What's your intersection interaction with Um, Back when Kim? I was trying to get into the audition circuit, I was reading it to try and, and give myself an edge, per se, me and everyone else that read it. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it is very insightful. It's very statistical, and it's very... She, she really breaks it down into a clear science instead of it being such a... A, su- a subjective thing it, it makes it a little more like quantifiable exactly well i had the chance to sit down with her and go inside the huddle have a little interview with her that's what's coming up now huddle up let's go inside the huddle kim whitman thank you so much for joining us on opera box score Kim Whitman from Wolf Trap Opera. Thanks, George. Happy to be here. So let's get to the important question first. Yep. Will the Cubs win the World <laughs> Series? You know, I wish I could pretend to be as good at sports as you and Oliver are, but I am so not. <laughs> Sorry. So that's a yes. Yes. Okay, there. there you just tell me what to say. <laughs> um, so I was at Wolf Trap in 2008 wow. as a directing fellow, and I was there in 2014 directing some <laughs> opera scenes. What is in the water? at Wolf Trap that makes everyone have such a great time. I don't know if there was something in the water we probably shouldn't tell you, but the truth <laughs> is I don't I don't really think there is. I just everyone is so happy and loves being there and loves making art and learning and hanging out together. Well that should not be a surprise. That should not be unusual. That's the way the world should work, right? You were, in my opinion, like the first blogger to really reveal what it was like to be in arts administration in opera. Why did you start blogging? Well, I started in 2004. Isn't that crazy? So I'm in year 12. And uh, and, and no one, I think the only reason my, our parent organization let me do it is no one knew what a blog was. So when I said, I'm going to blog, they're like, sure, go ahead. Uh, and now, of course, it's been grandfathered in and, uh, and I just keep doing it. But uh, long story short, I didn't come from this world. I got into opera at a much later age than most people. And then when I got there, I thought, well, why is everybody being so secretive about all this stuff? I mean, it, won't it be better for everybody if we can kind of just explain what's going on here? So I sought for a platform to do that. And that was the blog. Opera.wolftrap.org is the blog. I'm going to tell our listeners right now, if you're not reading Kim's blog, you are like two steps behind on the edition path. Everything on that blog is going to help you in some way. A big part of the blog, of course, is statistics. We love statistics on this show. Why do you love statistics? You know, I think if I had been born at a different time and a different scenario, actually, my, I mean, my son is a software developer. I, I, I just love all that stuff. And so I, it's kind of like a parallel interest of mine. But then, of course, uh, I figured it was a tool 
to, to do what you just spoke of a minute ago. It was a tool to help people understand some of the information that we get on our side, that singers who are out there, because they've only got a one-person, one-time narrow view in what happens in an audition room. So that's one way of getting a broader set of information out there for people to use. And what have you discovered in the statistics? We've talked a lot about them on our show. I'm interested in your take and what you're seeing. Well, you know, oh gosh, I'm not sure there's one thing I can, I can, one way I can answer that. I think that I have uh, learned that my gut reaction, my anecdotal response to seeing fads and seeing trends change and seeing them come out of sometimes vocal studios or specific university or conservatory programs and then spread uh, has been validated because I actually see it happening in the numbers. Um, but I also see, and I think if there is one big thing I see, I see it's the, there's a level of uh, intellectual curiosity and inquisitiveness and adventure that's out there now that I think is every year getting bigger and bigger and better and better. So when you started doing the stats, the repertoire was pretty limited. It was yeah. pretty predictable. What are some of the outliers in terms of selections, arias that you're seeing now in the stats? Oh, wow. I should have prepared for this question. You know, um, I put some on the blog in the last few days, and, and we heard one this morning, so it's much, uh, very much on my mind. We're hearing the Dr. Atomic arias in the last few years increasingly, increasingly. Uh, the, the, the Better My Heart baritone aria was out there for a while. Now we're starting to hear Kitty's aria, Am I in Your Light, more often. Uh, but And it, it wasn't to say that there didn't used to be a sense of adventure and ex exploration. It just was limited to, I think, a, a narrow strata of people, and now we're seeing it uh, a bit more across the board, I think. Yeah. You also see all sorts of get-ups that people are wearing. You're seeing guys and gals. You're seeing, I mean, there's a whole, like, fashion wing that could develop from your blog. I mean, what's, what's like, the big no-no in your book? Oh, well, the big no-no... Um... Maybe a few of the big no-nos simply are wearing something that is just too fussy that you, that you can't deal with in an audition. You've got scarves. You've got things that fall off of you. You just have to be comfortable. So I think that's actually the biggest thing that gets in people's way. The only other thing that's a no-no, I think, is just um, uh, it's... We don't want people to be formal, but we want them to show respect for the process. So you have to look as if you took a little time planning what you're going to look like. That's all. And that can take a lot of different forms. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. It can be fairly casual, but just has to show, just has to reflect the fact that this is an important thing you're doing and you have prepared for it, just like a job interview. And if you look like, well, you just ran in off the street and just going to throw at us whatever you happen to have at that moment, that's a little scary. That's the stage director's job, by the way, is to show up. Looking like that. Uh, okay, well, we need that in our lives too, right? But there's a huge range of, of great things that people are wearing. You just have to you just have to feel like you look like a million bucks, and you're comfortable enough to sing. Uh, and beyond that, you can be individual. We're talking with Kim Whitman from Wolf Trap Opera here on Opera Box Score. One of the stats that we pointed out on a show or two ago was about tenors and was about. Lenski's aria from Eugene Onegin by Tchaikovsky. And I said, I'm very surprised why there's all these guys doing this aria. What's your take? 
Uh, well, you, uh, you and Oliver, I think, conjectured that it might have something to do with language and trying to check all the different boxes for languages. And there, I'm sure, is a component like that. We don't require specific languages, but of course, I know people are putting together their package for use in lots of different places. So we will feel the effects of that. But I think the dirty secret that some tenors don't uh, understand that other folks don't is Zelensky is one of a handful of very um, popular tenor arias that don't have a B flat. So if you're in a position where the B flat isn't quite there yet, there's a series of arias that you can uh, offer that uh, don't go that far. And, you know, not everybody has their B flat when they're auditioning for young artist programs. Fine. But I, I think the thing that sometimes folks don't realize is that when we see that list of arias, we know what that means. Uh, and they think they're hiding something from us. But no, it's okay. Don't be ashamed. Strut your stuff. Uh, but yeah, Lensky doesn't quite go as high as some of the other big stuff. We also reviewed the baritone stats on a recent show. Mm-hmm. What's your opinion of what we had to say. Uh, you talked about Escamillo not being, and, and Oliver, I think one, one of the two of you said that, uh, you know, it's it's a big saying. It's a big lyric saying, a big grand opera thing. And, and often we're dealing with people in their 20s, typically. So that hasn't kicked in yet. I think also the thing that happens with Escamillo is that it's very often sung by and cast with uh, high lyric bass baritones. So you've got a, a different kind of a color. A lot of producers, I think, are looking for that crossover bass baritone baritone thing. And uh, the, the lyric baritones themselves, the ones who are classifying them as such in their 20s, often just sort of haven't reached that far in terms of the heft. Starting in November, and I'm going to drop a teaser for our audience, we have a mezzo-soprano joining the panel on Opera Box Score, so we will inevitably review the mezzo-soprano statistics. What should we be looking out for? What do you think is of interest there? Um, I, you know, I think that the fascinating thing about mezzos is this whole thing called Zwischenfach, which is there are ladies out there uh, who are classified as mezzos, really are very high lyric mezzos and can actually traffic in some of the soprano repertoire. And we were talking about the other day and I said, you know, the ladies have not really done a very good job because, you know, years ago, the guys decided, well, if you're too low for a baritone and too high for a bass, let's just make a thing, right? And call it bass baritone. So now we have this legitimate fach called bass baritone. We also have With, Barry Tenor as right. well, right? So women, I mean, seriously, ladies, there's contralto, and then there's mezzo and soprano. So we need more categories. We need to legitimize. I'm partially kidding, but I mean, it's an interesting thing because sometimes this fish and fach thing is looked on negatively from either one side or the other. It's like, oh, well, it's a soprano without high notes or it's a mezzo without low notes but i mean there's a there's a real there's a real little nice sweet spot in there that some people can operate in we'll keep that in mind when we get to the mezzo soprano stats last question here and i've been asking this to all of our guests is in your opinion what is the next big thing in opera look into your crystal ball for a minute kim whitman and tell us you know what should we be looking forward to in you know the next few years in this art form that we love? Oh, my crystal ball uh, is probably as murky as most <laughs> people's. Uh, but I think the next big thing is small. 
And we're beginning to hear a lot about that. Uh, we're getting beginning to see opera companies with very large venues uh, who are who do a lot of grand opera begin to create spin-off operations in smaller venues, sometimes of their own or in site-specific smaller locations. I think that a lot of what people are craving is not just uh, not just a change in scale, maybe with chamber opera, but also a change in immediacy. I mean, I think people crave uh, being up close and personal to singers and are often some, sometimes put off cold by what happens in a big opera house when they're sitting in the balcony. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that there's not that that grand opera in a big house is not a beautiful thing. It is. But the next big thing, I think, in the the amount of material, the amount of companies that are doing small venue things is very, very exciting. And, and the, the ways in which they're being inventive with it is particularly exciting. So we're really happy because we have a 350-seat venue. So, so uh, we've been there for a long time, and uh, our audiences love the fact that they, they have real good communication with our singers, and uh, we're happy to be part of that trend. The blog is opera.wolftrap.org. You have got to check it out if you are in this business or if you are auditioning in this business. Kim Whitman, really appreciate it. <laughs> Love being here, George. Thanks. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. George Cedarquist here on Opera Box Score. We were listening to Kim Whitman and my interview with her recently. Number in the studio, 847-866-WNUR. Give us a shout. Let us know what your audition stat or story is. I'm hanging out here with Giovanna Jacques. Hello. And Brad Caleb Lee. What's up? So, um, Giovanna, I've got to ask you about Kim's point about Zwischenfach, mm-hmm. this idea of of creating you know new voice types for female singers. I mean, you're on that. So, what's your experience been? Well, first of all, I'll say I can't. I, I could not agree more with any of her points. This being the first, mm-hmm. um, I think that the mezzo land is so diverse. You know, there are some of the mezzos that are that really could sing soprano rep and and get away with it. Just like there are some sopranos that sing mezzo rep beautifully. Um, I am not one of those. I am definitely a contralto and am very comfortable. The lower, the better. And I always kind of wished that I could I could promote myself more as a contralto than as a mezzo-soprano, but that's not as widely accepted. So I definitely agree that we need some more lower women's categories or some more higher women's categories, just some kind of middle ground where a lot more singers can be um, can can feel accepted and, and still say like, oh, I am this and I identify as this kind of singer. Brad, what about Kim's comment looking into her crystal ball that the next big thing is small? What's your take on that? Is there any truth to that in your experience? I think so. And I think it like what I heard her saying um, reminds me a lot of what I saw in Europe, uh, especially of like these found spaces and this idea of like taking things out and making them more unique um, unique, marketably more unique opportunities and experiences that you're, you know, trying to engage people in this art form with and the ability to say, you know, you're going to go to this cool space, you're going to have this amazing intimate experience with a singer, which is, I think is what the, the new generation of people who will hopefully sustain this art form for the next 50 years want. They want an intimate experience as opposed to something that's super far away. I mean, obviously, like Grand Opera, as she said, is like this amazing art form which is beautiful in its own right, but you know, there's something else out there that the form needs to take. And when she was talking about 
in the audition room itself, two things which totally stuck out to me. First of all, I was amazed that people are singing arias from Dr. Atomic. This is the John Adams opera from 2005. That, that blows my mind. To me, that's like people singing Philip Glass in an audition. Mm-hmm. It's not that you can't do it. It just it seems so rare to me. I, would, I will look at the stats on that that she's done. I was just surprised by that. I think it's kind of cool, though. I mean, it's it's Philip Glass shows off a vocal prowess like many other composers. I mean, and not only that, but it gives the pianist something new to play and it gives them something new to listen to. And the the risk about Philip Glass is that he's controversial in terms of how many people like his music and how many people don't. Um, I mean, I personally love Philip Glass. But it's a good point. Like, if you can sing it well and if you can communicate something and show yourself to be a good artist, why wouldn't you choose Adams or Glass? I think it also makes you seem a little bit edgy, doesn't it? Like, like, whether or not you actually enjoy that music, all of a sudden you seem like a person who is who is in the know about the new things that are happening, right? You're talk, you're starting a conversation presenting yourself in a way which is, oh, I'm up on the latest things and I know this music and I know how it's supposed to be. And, you know, so it's a whole nother story that you're trying to tell. Exactly. And auditioning, as uh, Kim Whitman says, is a lot about how you appear, right? right? She makes this mention that people are wearing stuff that's that's too fussy, yeah. which is such a perfect way of putting it. I've always thought, at least for the guys, I can only comment on the guys really, is that they're always way overdressed in auditions, way too buttoned up, ties, jackets. I just, when I'm on the other side of the panel, that just really puts me off. I have to say, in my new work, I end up seeing a lot of these auditions for these these artist programs. And this, I don't notice it as much in women, but men need to learn that if a t- if your suit coat is tight, don't button it. <laughs> <laughs> like you're gonna break that button. Or, and it looks really uncomfortable. From a designer standpoint, just get a jacket that fits. Exactly. <laughs> like if you're gonna wear a jacket, own a jacket that fits. Yeah. The end, gentlemen. Like, Dress if you yourself well. Those those freshman fifteen. Like I'm sorry, bud, but your jacket don't fit no more. Yeah. Go Ooh. get it one size bigger. Yeah. If there's no shame in it, every no good shame. every man needs a good tailor <laughs> and find yourself one. And lose lose the bow tie. Oh, I don't know about that now, George. Why not, man? I mean, I'm not so, a lover of the bow tie myself. Yeah. You do the bow tie thing? I don't no? do the bow tie, okay. even though I'm, you know, Southern. You would, yeah. Everyone thinks I do. I don't love the bow tie, but I know some people that do. And if it works for you, it works. If you, some people feel really comfortable and feel like really like they're ready to go. I say lose everything but the bow tie. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I need to go to the auditions you've been going to. <laughs> we'll be right back here on Opera Box Score 89.3 FM in Evanston. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Kids need a place to go during the afternoon, which is exactly why that's the time the Boys and Girls Club opened their doors and their arms to kids all over the country every day. But there are still thousands more kids who need our help. Call 1-800-854-CLUB. Support the Boys and Girls Clubs, the positive place for kids. This message brought to you by WNUR 89.3 FM. What if you were in trouble? Where would you turn? Volunteers of America, a nonprofit charitable organization, builds stronger communities, restoring confidence and self-reliance to help people help themselves. 
abused and neglected children and families, the elderly and disabled, the homeless and people in poverty. Find out how you can help change lives in your community. Call 1-800-899-0089. Volunteers of America, there are no limits to caring. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know in two minutes or less. Star tenor Lawrence Brownlee has said he felt torn in two different directions when he was asked to sing the national anthem at last Sunday's game between the Jets and the Ravens. Since the beginning of the NFL season, 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick has taken a knee for every singing of the pregame national anthem in order to protest racial oppression and police brutality. Quote, it is an act of protest which I agree with and support wholeheartedly, Brownlee said. Ultimately, he stood and sang the anthem before last Sunday's game. Supreme Court Justice and Opera Enthusiast Ruth Bader Ginsburg will perform the non-singing role of the Duchess of Crackenthorpe and Donizetti's Daughter of the Regiment in one of the performances at Washington National Opera next month. Conductor Martin Brabens will follow Mark Rigglesworth as the head conductor at English National Opera. He's 57. The Bayreuth chief exec Katarina Wagner is to receive a state medal for, quote, services to Bavaria in a united Europe. Composer Alma Deutscher has written an opera that's being staged this Christmas in Vienna, which is not bad if you're 11 and three quarters. Quote, I sometimes think that if I had a beard and I was old and fat, then people might take me a bit more seriously. She started writing an opera version of Cinderella when she was eight and has given the tale her own twist, setting it in an opera house. A video of a paramedic singing Nessun Dorma from Puccini's Turandot while chilling next to an emergency vehicle has predictably gone viral. Lewis Quinn of Merseyside County near Liverpool, England, occasionally uses the soothing powers of his opera voice to calm casualty victims. Quote, my personality doesn't suit pursuing a career in music. For that, you have to be very egotistical, Quinn said. That's the two-minute drill. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now, I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. And back here on WNUR with the lovely Giovanna Jacques. Hello. And the hirsute, Brad Caleb Lee. Hiya. You're pretty hirsute. <laughs> Look it up. Thanks, George. Thanks. Um, all right. So let's work through the two-minute drill here. Uh, Larry Brownlee. First of all, I think that's pretty awesome that Larry Brownlee was singing the anthem at the Jets and the Ravens. I mean, that's first really of all, cool. that's a dreadful matchup. The, the Jets are absolutely lousy. So I feel sorry for him that he had not much of a game to watch, although it was it was an interesting game, that particular one. But the whole Colin Kaepernick thing, taking a knee, first of all, Giovanna, so what's your take on that? I wholeheartedly support and agree it. Yeah. I agree with it, sorry. The argument was that when he was doing that, he was putting the attention on himself and not on the issue. I don't... Well, anyone who opposes an issue is putting the attention on themselves and not on the issue. Yeah, but if you're like a sports celebrity, people were like, it's all about you, dude. That's what you're trying to make it be. And it's it should be about the issues. 
I don't think it was. I think, you know, he felt like he was doing what he could to bring attention to that issue because then it was like, why is he doing this? You know, it was, you know, but it wasn't, it was a, it was, you know, it was a good statement that he was making in an appropriate way. And he's also using the fact that he is famous and in the public eye to bring light to the issue. Yeah. So I, I think it's a great, great way to do it. And who knows what he's doing behind the scenes about it, you know? Peaceful protest. Yeah, well, I'm, yeah. I'm playing devil's advocate. I mean, I do agree with you. I, I'm totally in support of him. And apparently uh, Larry Brownlee was as well. Um, he ended up standing. I mean, if you're performing the national anthem, you're not going to kneel. I, I don't know if people expected him to do that because that makes no sense. Yeah, I agree. I you mean, know. it's hard to sing. I was like, yeah, that'd be a hard thing kneeling. to do. Like, that would physically be a hard thing yeah. to do. That's my point. Yeah, he's no dummy. Larry Brownlee, he knows he knows yeah. what he's doing. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. RGB. RGB. I, okay, what's your take on that, Brad? I'm, I think it's pretty exciting. I think there was a great quote, though, from her, which I thought was funny, because they asked her to do the entire run of that show. Okay. And she said, oh, I don't know if I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't have a day job and perform in the evenings. <laughs> has, she, has she talked to people in storefront opera perchance? Oh that's, that's what so I kind of funny. wanted to ask. In our, you know, it's like, oh, that's what we all do every day, RGB. Like, but you know, I think it's, it's pretty. It's just a side hustle. Yeah, it's so great. Um, I think it's so exciting that she's getting to do that. You know, being such a huge supporter of the arts, and I think, yeah. you know, it's a lovely thing they've asked her to do it. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it done before. When I was in the resident artist program at Pittsburgh Opera, we did a production of Aida, which every night. The Triumphal March featured as its triumphant hero one of a legion of Pittsburgh sports legends. <laughs> That's exciting. And as the assistant director, I had to talk to these guys and like tell them wh- when to enter and where to enter oh, and like gosh. what to do. I met Charlie Batch, who was a famous, well, he was the quarterback for the Lions for a number of years. Um, and I met some hockey guys and some baseball guys. It's a bit of a stunt, I suppose, especially in Pittsburgh where they love, 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 love their sports people. Uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg thing, I, I'm i not going to be quite so harsh on that as I am on the I think it's probably Pittsburgh more that thing. she is more or less a stunt and more that she's such a huge, you know, her and Scalia were both such huge supporters of that company and have done super roles before. You know, they've been on that stage many mm-hmm. times. So I think it's just a nice thanks to her for her long-term support. Exactly. That's true. Uh, Martin Brabin's succeeding Mark Rigglesworth at English National Opera. He has quite the resume, George. Really? For a position of that size? I would disagree with you, Giovanna. I'm looking it up on the trustful Wikipedia right now. Okay, so it must be true. (laughs) It must be true. Well, Wikipedia is the most accurate source of information. I I guess when you told me he was, I don't know why, in my pee of a brain, I thought, oh, he's gonna be this young, energetic guy who is gonna learn a lot and kind of grow into this but i guess i didn't expect him i i set my standards low and i i didn't expect him to have had this much experience yeah i mean he's conducted i think in japan definitely internationally yeah the bbc scottish symphony orchestra okay and he's uh he was became the principal conductor of symphonia 21 i don't actually know what that is mm-hmm. Symphonia 21 i think it's an, a new music group in London. Yeah. I just the problem is that company is in such dire straits and I I don't know how he's going to turn it around from the musical side. Do you, when you I mean Brad when you were at uh 
in grad school in Wales, did you go to ENO? Or I saw Sasha Graha there. Yeah, okay. That was the only thing I saw. Yeah. Um, it was just, it was a bit far. <laughs> it is about four hours by train. And, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, quite, exp- as a, as all grand opera, a little bit expensive. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was and quite... And ENO is the people's opera, man. Yeah. I mean, those ticket prices don't even compare to the Royal Opera House. I know, I never, home. it's my greatest loss of the two years I never made it into the Royal Opera House. Oh. It's my great, like, sorrow of my we time should, in the we UK. We should rectify that, good sir. Well, and eventually, one will. We'll fly business class. And we'll... <laughs> Great. I'm going to hold you to that, George. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you'll be lucky. Yeah, FOMO, can I come? Uh, no. Can't. Okay. You weren't invited, Giovanna. Well, typical. I, I just love this news item. Katarina Wagner, who has been on my hit list for a number of years now, is about to receive a medal from the state of Bavaria, the Bundesland, Bavaria, for services to the state in a united Europe. My question is, should we be rewarding a inbred nepotistic institution with medals like this? Nope. Exactly. Not until they hire me, at least. And then I say, go for it. It's good for you. <laughs> Only can... after you have a house cleaning, right, George? Yeah. Well, how would we make that part of our trip? Okay. Is that we'll, we'll go to Covent Garden for you, okay. and then we'll go to Bayreuth for me. Great. I feel so included. Thank you. And then we'll go to your dream festival, Giovanna. What's your dream festival? Well, mine is Santa Fe, so we have to go the other way. <laughs> That's fine. That's a good long trip. Yeah, I can go to Santa Fe. I've never been to Santa, Santa Fe before. Fe. That would be great. Because you've, you've basically done all the festivals in France at this point, yeah. right, Jojo? Yeah. yeah. And Italy. I've never been to Santa Fe either. Yeah, no, I'm saying we, we could, should go. We could we definitely go. do Santa Fe. Been to Italy, but not to Santa Fe. Where'd you, where have you been in Italy? Uh, I did a, an awesome show in this place called Facecchio, which is halfway between um, Pisa and Florence. Ah, yes. Good old Tuscany. Yeah, it was Yeah, glorious. they don't salt their bread, though, which is really disappointing. But they have the world's best gelato shop is located <laughs> in Facecchio, so at the bottom of the hill, and it's two euros for three scoops. Wow. It's amazing. You're right. The gelato. You're right about the unsalted bread thing. Uh, I have a, a bread machine at home, and I just made some pane toscana the other day. Oh God, I sound like Oliver talking about my food. Yeah, you do um, kind of, but it's okay. But and it's it. true, there there wasn't any food in it, and so I gave it to my there son. There was no food in it. Mean no There's no salt in it. <laughs> well, if you ask my son who tried a piece, he was like, "This tastes sour. I'm not eating this." Uh, I was like, "Come on, man, this is pane toscana in sauce and lovely things, and like salty prosciutto and that sort of thing, mozzarella." But if you're a kid who like literally only eats mac and cheese, well, that's fair. I was like, can't you spread like your mac and cheese on the bread or something? I give up. <laughs> uh, this cute little 11 year old has composed an opera. I say go her. Her Sh- comment is. Should 11 year olds be composing operas? Yes. Why? I mean, why not? Why why <laughs> why should they? I mean, you know, if the opera's good, surely the opera's gonna be decent, they wouldn't be producing it, right? I mean Mozart was a child prodigy, maybe she is too. Very also, possibly. she's very, very up to date about the fact that if she did have a beard, not to put in my little feminist Hallelujah. View here, but if she did have a beard, right. people would take her much more seriously. She's probably right. She's so probably right. Go her. She's pretty outspoken. I mean, she's a tween, right? At no. eleven and three quarters. So yeah. she probably like, I don't know. Hates the world and old people. Especially I mean, I'm guys. 26 and I s- 25. I don't whatever 25, and I still <laughs> feel the same. You way, so. you don't have to lie in front of your friends, Javana. Like <laughs> I actually us. don't know. I'm 25. Yes, I am. <laughs> I made the same mistake the other day. All right, and then predictably, of course, we have the old story of the video going viral. viral. I just I'm so tired of this. Of like, 
Only because you haven't had a viral video, George. No, uh, just just you wait. Just you wait. <laughs> George has had a viral video. It's just inappropriate. To no, talk that about that here. that virus cleared up. <laughs> um, I just the like janitor slash paramedic slash cleaning lady cleaning lady singing. It's just it's so boring now, and just so tired of it. And plus, he has to be more egotistical anyhow. So it's not like he could actually succeed. Yeah, because we're all just narcissist egotistical. I, I No, look, I, I'm not hating on first responders here <laughs> because they do make the world go round. There's no one with more class than a Chicago firefighter as far as first responders. I haven't had any experience with the Chicago firefighting team. Haven't to, you really? I have not. Do you watch Chicago Fire? I don't. Okay. You There's watch a t- fire station right by my house, and they do not wear shirts 90% of the time. And I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, those guys are in shape, and they're all really, really nice. They're really, really nice as well. Good to know. Um, yeah, I just, I, I just, I gotta stop reading these sorts mm-hmm. of articles. I, I mean, on one side though, isn't it, isn't it great because it shows that like the form is still in the, like we worry that it's gone out of the public mind, but yet here are all these videos of people singing opera arias that must mean that it's still enough in their world to like n- learn an aria. Mm. I suppose so. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't. I don't disagree with that. It's just, it's, it's become sort of the. The unique calling card. Well, that's just, because of reality TV, though, isn't it? Yeah. And things like The Voice and American Idol and um, Britain's Got Talent and all of those things. Yeah. Britain does that's have talent. True. Oh, they do, but... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> who, who was it? Was it Tobias or Oliver on the other uh, one of the other shows was like, Canada's got effort. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. That was a real burn. That, that was, was a real, that's real... That's some shade burn. right there. Let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Oh, as usual, this hour has gone fast, really, really fast. Giovanna Jacques, why don't you kick it off with your good call or your bad call? My good call is straight from the BBC, and it is that Mumbai's Royal Opera House has reopened. It has been closed for 20 years, more than 20 years, and it reopened yesterday. Very nice. Brad Caleb Lee. My good call is going to be that we had a we had an impromptu orchestra and singers rehearsal for Songs from the Uproar in the space. So it was a great chance for them all to get together before the zits on Tuesday. Tomorrow morning. Oh, my God. Tomorrow morning. So great call by Catherine O'Shaughnessy to get all of those together in the same room. Fantastic. Well, hey, that's all we got for tonight's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. For WNUR, our programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brock Stucy. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Search for Opera Box Score. Like our Facebook page, share our posts, and of course, troll us. Use our hashtag... Opera Balls. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave a review. Let us know what you want to hear more of on the show. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Special thanks to our guest, Brad Caleb Lee. For Giovanna Jacques, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera. And hey, try and throw in a statistic or two. We're back next Monday night at 9 Central for our Halloween special. Don't miss it. Street Beat is up next with DJ Joe. You're listening to WNUR FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.